I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move Good day, everybody, and welcome back to I Like to Movie Movie. My name is Dan Scully, and I am here to do what I always do, talk about movies with me. But this time, I get to talk about movies with somebody else. So let me tell you a quick story. Uh, two episodes ago, I believe, we had filmmaker Woody Fentress on here, and he brought to my attention an incredible short film. Not short film, it's, I guess, feature. What, an incredible film called Forgotten Silver. Um, it's the one that is about, it's a faux documentary about Colin McKenzie, the New Zealand filmmaker who has been at the forefront of history without any of us knowing it. And one of the masterminds behind this film, uh, Costa Botez, who, uh, co-wrote and co-directed, he heard the podcast and reached out and said hello and was kind enough to grant his time for an interview. So, uh, over the next, uh, I think it's like hour 10, hour 20 or so, uh, we talk a little, maybe like... 80 minutes? I don't know. I don't, I, numbers, they're not happening right now. The, uh, I talked to him a little bit about Forgotten Silver, about movies in general, about filmmaking in New Zealand, uh, filmmaking around the world, and, uh, it's just a really good time. He's an interesting guy, and just a hell of a nice guy, too, so I thank him in advance, and everybody stay tuned for my interview with Costa Botes. Uh, before we get into it, though, remember to like, subscribe, share, do all of that fun stuff, at Movie Movie Cast on all things, uh, part of the Movie John Podcast Network. So definitely like, subscribe, check out some of the other shows on the network. Give me some feedback. Shoot me an email. That's Movie Movie Cast at gmail.com. And um, yeah, I think that is everything. So we're going to throw a little commercial in here and then we're going to go right into the interview. Sorry, guys, I'm a little spun. I just spent most of today watching Inland Empire. Uh, at, at the uh, Ritz at the Bourse. The, was it the Film Center at the Bourse? I forget. It's all changing owners. I just can't keep up. But uh, that's a wild movie, and that is a big investment of mental space and time on a Sunday. But I went for it, and I went for it the day after I did a double feature of Enemy of the State here at home, followed by a 4K restoration of The Conversation at the Film Center. And then I came back home and for some reason watched the most recent Fantastic Four movie, um, which I, I'm an apologist for. It's a mess, but I, there's things I like about it, but we'll get into that another time anyway. Here is my interview with Costa Botes of Forgotten Silver. Do you hear my chair squeaking? That's my chair. That's the desk. That's the chair. Here's the interview. I've I've always wanted a surf green Stratocaster. I've owned I've owned an American-made Fender Strat for about thirty years, but it never quite hit the spot. And just recently, I I bought a Mexican-made surf green Fender Stratocaster, and it right was on. continues to be love at first sight and oh, first touch. Yeah. Do you do you prefer green instruments? Because that's what struck me about your Paul Reed um, Smith. <laughs> no it's just um my guitar playing hero is um is jeff beck and for a long time he had a he had a signature model that was surf green and it just always attracted me um for years and years so the the, the paul Reed smith was just an accident really i just i just saw it and i kind of liked it i liked the look of it 
Um, oh, I know um, most of my guitars are not green. I've got about 10, and um, so it's not a fetish. Fair enough. Fair enough. I know most people who have a guitar to have two or three or four or five or ten. Um, I yeah. have four myself and I have not played in a while. I've switched to drums because right. I, right. I can't compose melodies for the life of me. But I've got rhythm. So <laughs> that's something that I always you got to have rhythm. You got to have rhythm with timing. Without gotta timing, have rhythm. And nothing. Yeah. I always joke music theory requires me to count so high. Drums, I just got to get to four. And so that's nice and easy for me, you know? Yeah, I, I could never count. I, I sort of try and feel it. And of course, uh, the way we feel things is so subjective. I mean, but one could say that about many things. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. No, it is true that I think that's actually one of the things that pulled me away from guitar is that I've always been jealous of musicians who have the ability to just sit down and say, hey, we're in A minor, and then they just jam. And hmm. even knowing some music theory, I could never really get into that. And I have a lot of musician friends. And I always felt... I always felt uh, just uh, kind of below, like, you know, hitting below my station when I or, sorry, batting above my station when I was playing with them because they were mm. all so good and I would get frustrated. And so oh. that was the jump to drums is that there's, I can really just interpret it as however I want. I can jam however I want. And like I said, if I can count to four, easy peasy. Yeah. Well, you know, if it, if it makes you happy, that's, um, you know, we can say this about so many things. And what is jamming? I mean, we're doing it right now. It's, it's jamming with words and um, relating. And, um, you know, if it's fun, do it. And when it stops being fun, maybe stop doing it. Do something else. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you know what? Let's use that as our in. So a couple episodes back, my listeners were treated to a discussion on Forgotten Silver, which mm. is how we have come together uh, to do this podcast. And... Um, we talked a little bit in our back and forth about Forgotten Silver about the idea of this central character, Colin McKenzie, creating film for the love of it, doing something because he loves to do it. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit about your experience in becoming a filmmaker and choosing to express yourself through film. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I guess my story is similar to most people's. Um, it begins in childhood. Uh, I'm, I'm of a generation, I'm in, in my early 60s now, I'm very, very old, very aged, um, but uh, when I was a child, uh, it was still a, a habit for people to go to the cinema, and my parents, after work, would go to the, um, the movies, as we said, and, um, and I would go with them, so as a five-year-old, I was seeing some cheesy old Dean Martin movies, and um, uh, I mean, it, it didn't really matter what was on. They just they just went as, as a habit. This is what people did. And uh, around about 1966, I'm going to say, there two things happened. One was I, I saw a double feature of the Beatles, which blew my tiny mind. And the other thing that happened was I saw a film called Fantastic Voyage, which oh, um, yes. was about a group of scientists being miniaturized and injected into the bloodstream of a scientist. Um, and that totally blew my mind. So I guess as a very young kid, I was exposed to the magical properties of film. And um, I started going on my own, you know, age seven or eight, and I'd go to the local cinema, which um, is now a, a derelict shopping um, center. <laughs> we have a few of those around our way too, yeah. especially after the last two years, we lost two theaters in my hometown. Mm. Yeah, well, really upsetting. Know, Time moves on and things change. But um, yeah, I, I would just go every Saturday to a matinee on my own 
and um, if I was if if I'd got enough pocket money, I could sit upstairs. Otherwise, I'd sit downstairs. And we um, we have a confection here in New Zealand called a jaffa, which is basically um, a piece of chocolate which is coated in in an orange flavored um, hard shell. And it was um, it was sort of the habit and tradition for kids to roll jaffas down the aisles of the cinema. So you'd hear all the sort of <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Um, we had so, a, a, oh no, good. Well, yeah, that's it. I, I I just love movies, you know, and um, and of course, uh, as I got a little older, I, I began to realize and understand that somebody made those films that they didn't just sort of pop out of some dimensional wormhole. Um, somebody had nice to put them that. together. Yeah, and and uh, uh, we didn't have a film industry in New Zealand. I'm talking the early seventies. Uh, I think between. Between 1930 and 1970, only four feature films had been made in New Zealand during that entire time. Wow. And they were made by rather mad, uh, borderline, crazy individuals who were just obsessed. What, uh, um, what are these movies? Can you, can you rattle them off? Because I would love to learn some, some history here. Uh, yeah, I'm not an authority on, on the history, but I, I would mention, say, a film called Riwi's Last Stand by Rudel Haywood. Okay. And Rudel Haywood was... Um, very interesting individual and in some ways Forgotten Silver is partially um, an homage to him because when we, when we talk about Colin McKenzie and Stan the Man, our fictional characters, going around New Zealand communities and um, doing these impromptu films which they would then show in the local theatre and, and the local people would turn up, that actually happened with Rudel Hayward. He, he made these things called community comedies and he would go from town to town with you know a very basic script, and they'd engage uh, local thespians, you know, just people who were amateur dramatic type people, and they would spend two or three days just going out improvising and shooting a little film, and then that weekend um, they would advertise in the paper. Um, they'd show the film, so all the locals would come and they'd see their own people on screen. That's so fun, and, and yeah, and, and literally a community comedy. And, and, and that's tremendous, you know, and that's, that's a very different way of looking at cinema. And um, I suppose, you know, that, that, that's an idea that really resonates with me because when we think of cinema, most people think of it as being this distant, faraway thing that, that happens in Hollywood. And the products of that cinema, um, you know, cost millions of dollars and, and everyone's highly glamorous. And, you know, you know that, that's, that's true, but it's true for maybe, you know, 1% of cinema around mm -hmm. the world um for the rest of us who, who who want to partake of this activity who who, who actually want to make cinema uh we, we have to find other ways you know of certainly um getting to an audience of uh, finding what satisfaction we can <laughs> it can be hard oh um, i'm sure <laughs> but i you know at the end of the day it is it's still it's making something you know that that you hope will get a reaction and you hope that um, whether it's close or distant, you know, it'll touch people in some way. Um, well, here, so, 16 yeah. hours in your past, Forgotten Silver has touched me and hopefully some of our <laughs> listeners as well. So, yeah, that's, and, that's and, you know, and, and you don't know how happy that makes me. Um, the thought that someone, you know, we're talking, it's a quarter century since that film was made. And I'm, I'm as happy as I can be that we're still talking about it after all this time, that, that right it still on. has some, some viability. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, it's definitely I've, one of the things. I mean, heck, we can just jump right into it. One of the things that really fascinated me is the character of Stan the Man, uh, mm -hmm. because in a lot of ways, as I'm watching it, you know, this was 95, 96, if I remember correctly. 95. Really. 95. So 95, 95 yeah. you predate the YouTube era, you predate the era of the jackass guys, the Tom Green guys. And so often I will see, you know, a prank video online and it's not really a prank. It's just somebody being being a jerk to somebody. And, yeah. you know, you know, it's it's not really comedy. And so in a lot of ways, the way that Stan the Man appears in Forgotten Silver you are sort of a Colin McKenzie in that you have predicted the future of film in a way that I never could have. You predicted well, I I, the YouTube generation in a way. I don't know about that. I, I, I can't claim to be um, um, uh, some, some kind of seer. Uh, I mean, personally, I think I was looking back in the past. I was, I was thinking of shows that I'd seen um, when I was young, like um, Candid Camera. Sure, sure. Um, and that was a popular TV show made in the US. Um, you, you probably know about it. Oh, I'm familiar, um, yeah. Um, what's his yeah. name, Ray? I was Ray really looking Fon back at Ray that. Um, but in more recent times, uh, also inspired by um, the Rodney um, Rodney King incident. Mm. Uh, and that was, a you know, obviously a more grim, terrible thing. But um, <laughs> Certainly. Uh, <laughs> well, even that, I mean, here in America, we are having a reckoning now with how police handle certain things. And it has been fueled by cameras being omnipresent, which is, you know, what yeah. happened yeah. when he assaulted the mayor. And of course, prime minister. It, um, I mean, I've thought about this since because because I've gone on to make actual genuine documentaries. And um, I've thought a lot about the, the so-called observer effect, you know, the, the, the fact that you, you, a, a camera can never be entirely objective. Um, we talk about being um, a fly on a wall, but, you know, honestly, that, that's, that's self-delusional because the very fact you, that you're there has an influence on events. Mm. You, you can't avoid it. And uh, the observer effect was written about um, a long time ago, um, by uh, Margaret Mead's husband, I, uh, I, c I can't recall his name, but he was a sort of um, uh, documentary maker and anthropologist. Um, and I, di I didn't have a clue about that stuff back then, you know, but, but I was certainly aware that the presence of a camera can't help but have an influence on, on what's happening. And um, I just thought, in, in that instance, I just thought, well, this is fertile ground for comedy, you know, like mm -hmm. we, were, we were trying to make people laugh. And um, it's interesting because the film tugged audiences into different directions. And uh, I just thought it would be funny. Um, and uh, my, my co-writer and co-director, very much more famous, Peter Jackson. Um, Not for long. I, now that you're on I Like to Movie Movie, the scales <laughs> are about to tip. Yes, <laughs> yes, I will scale up. Um, we, we, we agreed on, on a lot of things. Um, this was an idea that I actually... Um, passed by him because it was something that I was just developing for fun on my own and he, he got really excited about it and he suggested that we collaborate and of course I said yes because there's something about Peter he has an aura of um, um, possibility mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know when you make films you have to be an optimist and Peter's nothing if not an optimist and um, so I very happily threw in with him and we developed it from that point on together and we agreed on pretty much everything I think except the tone um, and and we ended up agreeing on that as well, but it was it was a subject of an argument. And Peter's Peter's instinct was to go more and more real, and my instinct was to 
to make it um, funny. And mm. I think where we met was was exactly the right place. It was it's sort of like a balance, but it really depends on whether you know that the film is a sham or not, whether you know that what you're watching is a fiction. If you know, I think you find it funnier than if you don't know, if you get drawn in. And that was a big um, learning curve for me um, mm -hmm. afterwards because it upset people. It, it, it Rather than make them laugh, it made them angry. And that was not at all my intention. And they were angry because they felt they'd been hoodwinked. They felt they'd been taken in and that we were laughing at them, which... To be honest, um, I did feel like laughing at some of them. Yeah, that's a. I mean, that's always the mark of a good satire. Par like, I feel like the mark of a good parody is when people go, "Oh, what an honor they parodied me." But the mark of a good satire is when the subject of the satire or the target of it goes, "Hey, hey, wait a minute, that's not cool." And so, I, I hmm. think you might be spot on if you got that sort of a reaction. Well, Can you talk? It, it was. It was perhaps more more a case uh, locally mm -hmm. in that. New Zealanders, I think, have tremendous chips on their shoulders. Look at me, falling sideways. <laughs> um, and I think it's because, you know, we're a tiny little country at the arse end of nowhere, and and yet we feel that we are rather important. And along comes uh, this film, which purports to tell the story of someone who's tremendously important in the world of cinema. And here's this hitherto unknown New Zealander who has done everything first. Mm-hmm invented the close-up for god's sake he, yeah uh, invented the tracking shot he did this he did that oh my goodness you know the swelling of of national pride in the national oh, yeah. bosom he caught the uh, first uh, flight he caught the yeah exactly yeah and 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 the next morning when i realized just how many people had actually believed it i thought oh we, we could be in trouble here <laughs> and um so it proved i mean it went on for weeks this um this kind of inane controversy over this hoax film and the word hoax kept getting repeated over and over and the fact that it, i think it's a pretty smart piece of writing you know like um mm -hmm. that's what i'm proud of uh and a pretty good piece of film none of that mattered you know it was all about you know how peter jackson and that other guy that no one knew his name um <laughs> had um had, had had conspired to to make fools of new zealand oh. Not the yeah, case that, that's uh, they're overthinking it. I think overthinking it. Yeah, yeah. So that's anyway. certainly the the mark of somebody who feels like they got got is that strong response saying, "Oh, well, this was done with malintent," and it's no, it's fun. It's no, no, it was supposed to be fun, and well, there was there was <laughs> there was a, a little bit of serious to it in that um, I, uh, I I I I don't feel this so much now, but. Um, then I think I felt a little bit hard done by as, as someone trying to make a living in a creative industry. And, mm. um, and I just felt that uh, New Zealand on the whole, or New Zealanders, don't tend to value um, or build up people enough, you know, like, particularly in the arts. Uh, but yet when someone does great, you know, when they, when they do well in, in a field, then everyone rushes to claim them as a national hero. Yep. Um, but they don't do enough to deserve that national hero. And I, and, and I think I was having a little bit of a needle at that. And that might have been another reason. I think people might have picked up on that and just felt like, you know, someone was having a go at them. And, and I was actually, to be honest, because it's definitely a very uh, human thing to to want to support whenever somebody makes it. Um, I came out of the stand up comedy world. Yeah. And anytime somebody elevated to the next level of comedy, 
everybody brushed up to oh i was their best friend all since day one and all that yeah and yeah. very rarely was it ever the case now granted the community was much more supportive than it sounded like the community was there but it's that same human instinct to just grab those coattails and try and get something out of it and yeah. uh it's yeah. it's kind of ugly but i think it is it is somewhat natural you know we are naturally social climbers but i guess that's different in new zealand uh you know you have a different history than than we do certainly in terms of of art being put out into the world uh, in america we we try to dominate all markets wherever we can i guess I, I i sort of had a different understanding um i have a friend who lives in oklahoma and um he invited me to go and stay with him he's a professor and teaches film um and uh it didn't take long for me on the ground in Oklahoma to go, oh, my God, this is just like New Zealand. Everyone, <laughs> everyone's got a chip on their shoulder and they feel like everyone's ignoring them. And, you know, all the actions in um, New York or, or, or L.A., mm -hmm. because, because I was meeting a lot of filmmakers, you see, and that was their perception. They wanted to make stuff in Oklahoma, but they felt like it was kind of hopeless and no, 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 no. Of course, since then, there's been a little, a little bit of movement there, and we've seen some productions coming out of Oklahoma. Um, oddly enough, executive produced by a New Zealander. Have you seen, Res uh, what's it called, Reservation Dogs or heard of it? No, I've heard of it. I have not seen mm. it. I hear that it is wonderful. It's really, really good. And um, Taika Waititi, who, who's the exec producer, it's got him, it's, it's got his feel all over it. But of course, the, the, the cultural roots of, of that particular um, series lie in Oklahoma. Um, and yet there, there are parallels, uh, I guess, First Nations, Indigenous people. Um, so it, it's interesting how culture can travel. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, but um, I, I'd say if, if you make films, if, 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 you, if, if your thing is to make cinema, then Hollywood is just this, um, this thing which can't, cannot be ignored. Um, to most people, cinema is Hollywood. And yet, I would like to say that it's not the be all and end all. So I get fed up every Academy Awards season, for instance, with all the fuss that's made over the Oscars, and rightly so, because we're talking about you know um, often the apex of of what's possible in, in the form. But it, that's not all there is. Mm -hmm. there's, there's so much more to cinema than um, you know the products of a commercial film industry. I'd like to think that it's certainly moving in that direction in terms of people being more aware. Because I always get frustrated when people say, oh, it's always the same movie over and over again. There's nothing new under the sun. Mm -hmm. And I, I always respond with, I think you're just not looking hard enough. Because yes, the, the local multiplex is inundated with Doctor Strange and MCU movies and all that. Mm -hmm. But due to digital filmmaking, the fact that all of us have a camera in our pocket at all times, there really is endless opportunity for a film to be made. And in the world of streaming, endless opportunity for a film to be exhibited. And so, yeah, it always frustrates me when people say, hey, you know, I mean, I, I say endless opportunity with the caveat that there's still many hurdles, uh, mainly financial ones. But mm -hmm. uh, for example, my girlfriend is an actress. And one of the things that changed for her over COVID times is that New York and L.A. are no longer these destinations for creatives because you can really get 
an actor from anywhere. You can zoom them in, you can fly them in if you wanna hire them. They don't necessarily have to be in the room. And I think that that's starting to shift a little bit. And I hope that that's starting to shift. And maybe there will be a downstream effect just in terms of opportunities for filmmakers that aren't Hollywood, but will give, you know, give the opportunity to put a film in, in front of eyes. And well, so, no, I hope so. Good and bad. Um, but all I know is that great changes are afoot. Um, and not, not just in the way that films are exhibited, but also the way that they're made. Um, mm. Technologies like Unreal Engine, uh, are, are, you know, on the brink of creating a revolution in, in how things are shot. And, and, you know, we don't know where these things are going. Um, I don't know, I just feel like a straw in the wind sometimes. Um, what I cling to is authenticity, you know, mm -hmm. and um, all I know is that if it's real, if it feels real, um, then uh, I get a I get some kind of emotional charge off it. Um, but that well, said, you know I'm also a fan of the Marvel Comics universe. Certainly, certainly, <laughs> we are. We're all... I like that sort of stuff. I like everything. Um, if it, if it's good, you know, and um, there's there's good, there's bad, and all kinds of things. Um, there's few experiences more dire than sitting through an extremely slow art movie from Turkey where nothing happens for <laughs> five hours. Um, and at the same time, you know, I've seen I've seen Marvel movies that um, have just bored me stupid. Um, do you want me to name one? I the mean, Eternals. Like the Eternals. Ah, uh, yes, the Eternals. <laughs> Eternals is well named. You have to be an Eternal to watch that thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I felt. Uh, what was it in the Eternals? They live so long that their memories start to fill their brain and they lose their mind. About three quarters of the way through the movie, I was like, I think I could die. I could self-diagnose that same mm. condition because there's a lot yeah, going I, I, on. <laughs> I, um, I, I, I'm a bit funny that way. I, I, I sort of. I like to get critical and other times I sort of hate myself for being critical because I know I know how damn hard it is to make a film you know like every any any finished film is is oh, it's a miracle um, it is a miracle yeah yeah so but it's it's hard to turn the critic off you know like you, you just can't I mean that's what they're for movies you know they're, they, they're supposed to make you feel something and you know you're allowed to like them or not like them but I tend to take the view that um just because I don't like something does not mean it is bad mm, it absolutely. just means that it didn't work for me yeah i think that there's very little room i i work as a film critic and there's very little room in my estimation for any sort of objectivity because i like so many movies that people hate and and mm. vice versa so i yeah there's really no objectivity it really is about that experience of watching um, I wanted to highlight something that you said. You were talking about something being real. You were looking for something real. Yeah. In Forgotten Silver, the thing that I think just impresses me most is that the footage that Colin McKenzie, I'm air quoting here, captured, um, mm. a lot of that appears to be actual old footage from somewhere, mm -hmm. but I imagine that you also created some old footage using newer techniques oh, yeah um, a lot of it can you talk a little bit about that process because you know yeah. if i if i wasn't you know if, if there wasn't a steam engine uh, uh camera or the bicycle camera or the image enhancement on the newspaper which is hilarious um <laughs> it could pass for real i could see why people would say hoax and a lot of the reason is this footage has a air of verisimilitude to it but yeah the the, the, the concept for that uh, film right from the beginning was um, to tell the life of a filmmaker and to employ his own films. 
um, to illustrate that life. So right from the beginning, it was a given that um, we were going to have to reproduce old old movies. And uh, I mean, I, I, I'm a silent movie fan, and Peter's very much so, um, loves them. You know, he's quite a scholar. And um, I did a lot of research. Uh, I watched um, old movies, <laughs> particularly looking at the textures, you know, looking at the sort of things that were done and the kind of techniques, um, you know, um, simple things like irisins, for instance, just, just um, things that were common that were, that were done in those days. One thing I did notice, I, I, I watched a, um, a British series about um, European silent cinema. And it was um, it was directed by Kevin Brownlow, who's a, who's a great um, you know historian of, of of silent cinema. And the first thing I noticed was that the films looked beautiful mm. because he used archival um, prints, and they were clean, and they were coloured. That's the thing that struck me. And I don't mean they were full colour; they were tinted. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. We knew that we were going to have a biblical epic in our film. That was going to be the, the climactic, um, the closing act, you know, to, to see his great, um, see his great epic Salome. And um, so when I saw these films, I thought, ah, um, okay, these ones, when, when you see Salome, it's going to look old, but it's not going to look damaged and it's going to be tinted. But on the other hand, we, we also knew we were going to have to make um, films to reproduce what he allegedly did when he was a teenager, mm. shooting with a you know very primitive camera, and uh, that was going to look very very damaged, like the world's first tracking shot allegedly <laughs> shot with his bicycle cam, and um, uh, those poor chickens, so, yeah, <laughs> and the pig, and um, anyway, that was going to have to be really damaged and everything in between. So so we we sort of mapped out. Um, for every every bit of footage that we were going to reproduce or, or create, the level of damage and the kind of damage and the intensity of damage, and there were a couple of guys who were working at the laboratory here, who were very instrumental. Um, Brian Scadden and I'm um, sorry I can't remember the name of the other one, Jeff Jeff someone. Anyway, those fellows um, they did extensive uh, research and development and. They had the time of their lives doing the opposite of what they would normally do. Like instead of protecting the precious negative, they would drag it through the corridors. They would um, they would pour water on it. They would pour acid on it. They would pour dirt on it. They would you know they would do all kinds of things. And of course, you'd keep the original negative safe, but you'd work on copies. And so um, they'd show us, and we'd go, no, no, more damage or less damage or a different kind of damage. And, you know, we built up, a, um, I suppose, a range of things that could be done and then we could apply them. That's incredible because it, it really I've seen so many falsified old footage sort of movies. And one of the traps that everybody runs into is that they'll shoot digital and then try to age it in post. And yeah. it can look good. Um, I'm sure I've been fooled by it in times that I, I didn't recognize. But yeah. uh, more often than not, I can usually tell. And I don't think can't. that's ever the case in Forgotten Silver. Now, granted, I guess you're predating digital recording. In we are, yes. But yeah. Yeah. Um, it, was all, it was all done analog. And you, you can't reproduce the, the randomness of um, physical damage mm -hmm. because it's never going to be predictable. 
and um, I think that's the key to it. Uh, sure, there, there, are, um, there are lots of digital um, ways to mimic old film damage, but it tends to be repetitive. It tends to be a sort of um, a thing that you, you can spot. Um, I mean, one thing we wanted to avoid was the, you know, the, the railway tracks running up and down the screen because mm -hmm. that's such a cliche. And um, so really, we, I don't know, we had good results with acid, um, good results with just um, just dirt on the floor and drag. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes um, that's yeah. the best way. Yeah, I was, I was really happy with, um, with, with and, and also that we, we were able to mix in real footage, you know, mm -hmm. actual, actual archival footage. And, well, and what it, was that pulled um, from? Was that just archival random footage of just? Well, actually, um, a lot of it came from um, a Soviet era uh, World War II documentary. Okay. Strangely enough. Um, and uh, I went through that because we had to find something, you know, that, that, that we could um, get the copyright on and, and, and use. And um, uh, we were lucky enough to get that. And uh, yeah, I went through it with a fine tooth comb and just Oh, we'll have a bit of that. We'll have a bit of this. We'll have a bit of that. And I imagine you you could look at that and sort of match its look to whatever you're shooting. You know, well, we didn't is, have to match like a... so much um, because that was mainly used as background to um, you know verbal testimony. So if if someone's being interviewed about the Spanish Civil War, you know, you, you're then cut to a bomber unloading bombs and oh yeah, building yeah. blowing up and. Um, well, they weren't blowing up in Spain. They were they were blowing up somewhere in Russia. But hey, sure, sure. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> so another thing about Forgotten Silver that I wanted to ask was: you've got a couple talking heads in there. You've got Leonard Malton. You've got Sam Neill. What is the process process like of trying to explain to these guys what the what the the premise is here, what the gag is with Colin McKenzie? Well, I mean that—that's easy. You just—you just tell them what the premise is. <laughs> fair enough. Okay, fair. Enough. <laughs> the, the trick is in, um, uh, I, I guess, putting them at their ease and 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 asking them um, questions in such a way that they can answer in their own voice and make mm -hmm. it sound as if um, make it sound as if they're just making it up. And uh, uh, we, we were lucky. I mean, we 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 asked the right people, I suppose, and and. Mm -hmm. um, they, they immediately liked the gag and they went along with it and they could bring a lot of themselves. Like Sam Neill, he came up with a perler of a line when he said, um, talking about Stan the Man, he said he was the last of the damaged film technicians. Now, I could never write a line like that. Um, but Sam had been a, um, he'd been like a, a director at our National Film Unit. This is very early in his career be before he became better known as an actor. Mm. And... Uh, and so he he would have um, you know come across some some of the elderly gents who had worked in the laboratory. The National Film Unit was virtually the only place in New Zealand where where there was um, full time filmmaking going on, and it was created to make um, government propaganda basically. And uh, from I'm going to say it existed before the 1940s, but I'm going to say from the 1940s it became sort of what we know now. So there were a lot of older guys. Who worked in the lab and some of the, the the techniques or processes used in the lab were perhaps a little bit questionable from a health and safety point of view and so some of them probably had been damaged by chemicals oh and he sure knew all that I, I had no idea but but he you know he he came up with that backstory in that interview where he said you know stan uh, i first came across stan when he was working in the laboratory he was 
the last of the damaged film technicians. Um, what a wonderful line. And, and that's what I mean, you know, when I talk about authenticity, um, this stuff just comes from someone's life, from their own experience, and you can't make that shit up, mm-hmm. you know? And um, yeah, I, I, I love that when I, when I heard it. Well, if ever, I, if ever there was a point in the movie where I would start to doubt that this is, you know, meant to be, you know, this is pretend, yeah, it's yeah. when someone like Leonard Malton comes in and starts talking film history, because he's someone that I, as a critic, I very much respect. And I know he has such a breadth of knowledge. And the way that he speaks about it is, is it, it just seems, it seems so real. It does not seem yeah, like a yeah. joke at all. And I really buy it. Meanwhile, and you know, I have my Gremlin shirt on. Meanwhile, Leonard Malton is famous for playing himself in Gremlins 2 and yeah. being completely eviscerated by Gremlins in response to him eviscerating the first movie with a poor review. So mm. uh, he definitely is somebody that has a sense of humor. And, and I guess you could see that here, but playing it straight is so, yeah. th- that's got to be difficult. Oh, he, but... he, he did us an enormous favor. And, and I think that that connection was made, um, I can't recall now, um, exactly what was going on there but i think it was a friend of a friend of a friend's wife that okay <laughs> something like that um and i've heard since um not not directly because i i you know um i just haven't <laughs> but i've heard i've heard since that he routinely refuses to do any such thing again um i think he he, he perhaps got some blowback i i don't know i um but I guess, I guess it's it's tricky, you know, because we we went into this in the spirit of fun. But mm. for someone whose bread and butter is um, a claim to uh, history or a claim to um, veracity, uh, I guess I guess telling lies isn't the best way to get people to trust you. <laughs> That's definitely one thing that I always try to consider, especially you know when I'm when I'm writing reviews and such is. I do have a tendency to lean into hyperbole because I'm a bubbly person. It's just what I do. But it gets rough when I write a review and I go, oh, man, this is the best movie I've seen in a decade. And the next week I see a movie that's even better. And I and, you know, then you're shot in the foot. So there is probably a a, uh, there's a desire for consistency when your opinion uh, in factual matters is respected. And I understand that's probably something he'd want to cultivate. When, when you're in the world of opinion, you know you can say what you like. Mm-hmm. It's just an opinion. And, sure, um, sure. But but if your reputation rests on um, a claim to truth, then it becomes a bit trickier. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, Even in fun, and, you know, to this day, I still get people coming up to me, and they and they say this, you know, with a smile on their face. They're joking, kind of, but they say things like, "How can we trust anything you say now after <laughs> forgotten so?" <laughs> I actually had a I had a long conversation with a filmmaker the other day via Twitter. Um, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with a documentary series called Cursed Films, and no, no. it's on the streaming service Shutter. And the the concept is just they'll dig into films that had like horror films that have uh, troubled elements, such as uh, Poltergeist. You know, at the end in Poltergeist, when they're in the pool with all those skeletons, those were oh, yeah. actual skeletons from a medical place. No. And so, yeah, and so then, and then the, the little girl who's in those movies unfortunately passed right after the trilogy ended. Oh. Um, the one daughter was oh, horribly murdered by her boyfriend. So it goes into, you know, these, these cursed things. And there was an episode recently on The Wizard of Oz. And one of the talking heads that they spoke to is this guy named Greg Turkington, 
who does a character of a film critic. And in this documentary, he plays that character in character speaking about some of the lore of Wizard of Oz. And I inquired, I said, if this is a documentary and we have a character that is not real, and I know it's not real, but you're presenting him as real, hmm. where does this land in the documentary? And so I started to go back and forth with the director, uh, Jay Cheel is his name, and he was very nice about it. He was very gracious uh, with answering my questions. And he said that the, you know, kind of the point of doing something like this is that he's not necessarily purporting a documentary that's, that's factual so much as one that's true. And this character represents a point <laughs> yeah. of view that they might not have had a talking head for, but they had a yeah. funny way about doing it. And I started to think about one of my favorite filmmakers is Werner Herzog. Mm -hmm. And Herzog's a great documentarian, but he's not above staging a sequence if it speaks no. to a larger truth. Mm -hmm. And just having this conversation about that really it caused me to lighten the hard grade that I give to documentaries that flex actual factualness um in in exchange for a more palatable not palatable but a more digestible truth and yeah, so it's, it's a slippery slope it, it really is and um uh Herzog's great on that with his mm. so-called Minnesota declaration when he talks about um there's an unforgettable line that's just seared in my memory where he um he says something like uh uh facts are the truth of accountants and I, I feel like he's exhibiting contempt for accountants there, but um, but um, I don't know. I, I think we all draw that line somewhere a little bit differently. It's it's again in the realm of the subjective. Uh, Herzog, I, I, I revere Herzog. He, my entire working life, he's been like a, a shining light. However, he draws the line somewhere I wouldn't draw it you know he, he he does certain things that I would feel uncomfortable doing can you um, provide an example of that can you think yep, of one um uh well actually the examples I can provide that come to mind um are brilliant examples of his genius um but I wouldn't necessarily go there like for instance in in the um the white diamond um that film the premise of that is a uh, aeronautical engineer scientist who's working on creating a um um a, a, a balloon basically a, mm -hmm. a that you can pilot and um he um he goes to test this thing in the amazon jungle in a place that seems manifestly dangerous <laughs> he's going to test this um balloon knowing that 10 years earlier his best friend had died in an earlier version of this contraption. Um, he goes to test it right above this damn waterfall in the middle of the Amazon jungle. And I'm thinking, it's crazy. Why would you go there? Well, it turns out he's gone there because Herzog asked him to. But that that fact is never acknowledged in the film. Fair enough. <laughs> so he, he wants a beautiful shot, yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're amazing, poetical, wonderful, cinematic reasons why that is the perfect location. Um, but then Herzog, puts his money where his mouth is because the first person who flies the balloon in that dangerous location is Herzog. Of course it is. He of puts himself <laughs> in the seat and he goes up. <laughs> um, beautiful film, beautiful film. But that know, is a wonderful I, film. I, I think I think a certain sense of responsibility for life would prevent me from doing that. Um, certainly, certainly. 
And there's another another example would be he, he made a film called Little Dita Needs to Fly, which is again it's an incredible movie. I love that movie um, so much. <clears throat> and there's a moment in it that's really telling, like it really hits home um, when Dita gets out of his car and closes the door of the car behind him, but then he opens it again, shuts it again, and then he goes into his house and the same thing happens. And then we look on the wall and there's all these pictures that appear to be of, of um, rooms with open doors. And then he says, um, you know, because he was in a prisoner of war camp in Vietnam for years and suffered terribly, he, um, he always feels as if he has to have a door open behind him. And so he reflexively opens and closes the door and you think, oh, that's fantastic. And then you find out later he does no such thing. Um, <laughs> it just makes for, yeah. Do it. yeah. And, you know, that makes me a little uncomfortable. And yet, you know, from he says truth, oh, sorry, facts are the truth of accountants. Um, I mean, it makes and, perfect sense. That totally attracts. That is something that, <clears throat> that it feels natural that somebody who was confined against their will would want that <clears throat> door open. And it speaks to that trauma, but it is it is a lie. And it, it's, it's, it's a lie sense. that illuminates the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and and, you know, that 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 was ringing. And that's a that's a line from Picasso. And, and, and I knew that line um, and I used it to defend myself from all the attacks after Forgotten Silver, you know, said, well, we tell a lie so we can tell the truth. But perhaps that was a bit empty on my part because I hadn't really felt it, you know. And since then, mm. I've gone on to make um, several real documentaries and I have felt it because mm. you're constantly struggling to take reality um, and bend it into poetical forms, you know, to, to actually communicate cinematically. And so when I came across um, Herzog's uh, Manifesto, um, he says some cra crazy things in that manifesto, but there's these, these lines that just leap out. They're, they're like, they glow like neon, and they really spoke to me. You know, this idea that there is a deeper truth beneath facts. Mm. And if you can serve that in some way, if you can, if you can bring it to the surface in your film, um, then you have something really powerful because it's speaking to that, that deeper truth. Certainly. And that's a gamble because I've, I've seen that fail sometimes. Um, that's oh, yeah. what bugged me in that cursed films that I was talking about, because I was so attuned to this comedian that was playing, a, you know, playing a character and not, you know, not allowing that he is a character. But you know, you, it, you, it, knew, it, you, you knew him, you knew who he was. I someone... knew who he was. Someone might not. And so that's yeah. where it bugged me. And on that particular circumstance i now understand why it was done i don't know if i would make that choice if i was making it but i think that that's like an example whereas oh now i'm going to struggle to remember it um herzog made a documentary for netflix about the internet and there's a scene where there's a group of buddhist monks and they all have their phones out and they're all tweeting together and texting together mm -hmm. and that's a moment that was purely staged they don't hang out on the top of a mountain texting. But the truth of the matter was, even these guys who are tremendously off the grid do have phones and do connect to the, you know, to the grid in a way that we wouldn't expect. So we find that truth. And so that feels a little bit easier to swallow for me because it's just a, a staging of an image and you want the monk holding the phone. That's a powerful image. Uh, yeah, but even I mean, if it, you didn't catch it for real, yeah. Right. Ultimately the buck stopped with is it truth or is it just a, a perception or idea that the filmmaker has had and then they've served it by staging an image that you know everyone can look at and go oh but is it true mm. and i think that's what separates fiction from documentary ultimately mm -hmm. 
Hmm. Well, and then again, though, we look at something like Forgotten Silver, and there's a truth there where you're poking fun at the New Zealanders' inclination to to grab on to a famous person as they exit. And you find that truth there. I think that that truth was found through your experience. And this is not a documentary that on its face necessarily purports to be a documentary so much as it's just having fun with the form. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, really, the, 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 the root of Forgotten Silver is an attempt to express our great love for the medium. Mm. And the final image in the film where you see um, Colin McKenzie as a very young man um, turning the crank on a, on a hand crank camera and filming himself in a mirror. And he's got this look of wonder on his face. Um, that's Peter and I, and I think every filmmaker, as, as a young child staring at that magical screen, you know, and, um, and, and I think that that's really what we were going for. I think you nailed it. I, that speaks to my heart. The reason why I do a podcast, the reason why I play the drums, the reason why I do anything is because I like to make something exist that, that didn't prior to, you know, I, I, there's, there's a power in that, there's a joy in that. But I'm glad you brought up the last shot because in our email correspondence, you asked if I could figure out how you did that last shot hmm. with the caveat that he is filming himself, but he is not necessarily cranking the camera and filming with no. that camera no. i can't figure it out you're gonna to have to let me know unless that's a secret i cannot figure it out is there a oh, hidden uh, camera on him is that a, a camera dressed up as an old-timey camera it was the letter the letter um ah. so so that that was um that was peter's old hand cranked bolex 16 millimeter camera and we built an antique camera to go over the top of it that's incredible. With a slot for the lens. So what, what, what you had to do to get that shot was get everybody in place, place the Bolex camera on, on the vintage tripod, wind it up. You, got to, you get about 35 seconds, I think. Sure, sure. Wind it up and then press go and then quickly put the vintage camera on top of it and everyone clear the frame and then he, he, pretends, to, he pretends to crank it. That's incredible. And, uh, it's such a serene yeah. moment. And knowing that just out of frame, there's a bunch of panicked filmmakers making yeah. sure everything goes straight. I love it. Yeah, especially because he's balanced on a tabletop because that was the only way we could get him high enough to be reflected in that antique mirror. Sure, sure. And the whole thing was really kind of dodgy and we just scared that, that everything's going to collapse. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's a gorgeous shot and it is it is marvelously effective in the moment. And I think it really does bring home the idea of... We're, we're making a movie because we love to make movies. And, and this is the art that we're going to express. I, I think that really is captured so nicely there. So whatever. We love to movie movie. We do. We, we love, love to movie movie. Hey. And we're going <laughs> to snip that audio and we're going to turn it into a commercial. Now, the um, another, another term that you used in referring to Colin McKenzie that I wanted to bring up was um, that he is, quote, a magnificent loser. Oh. And you referred to characters that are a nutcase on the bleeding edge. And I personally find that plight very attractive. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on as to why that is such an attractive concept. Well, you know, one way to get people interested in, in, in your protagonist, if you're, whether you're making fiction or documentaries, to make people feel sorry for them. <laughs> so, so that's, that's you know, if, if, you, if, if you take someone who's, who's doing something that is somewhat admirable, um, 
no matter whether they're succeeding or failing, it's in the trying that we relate to them. And Colin McKenzie is very much that. And I could relate to that. Peter could relate to that. I think any filmmaker could relate to that, but so can a general audience because they're seeing someone trying to do something magnificent. Um, and then, of course, they're going to feel every painful bump in the road and every setback. And that's what you want to do um, when you make a film. You, you want people to feel something. You want to make them or feel like they're walking in the character's shoes. And if they can relate to the goal, to the desire of the character, and you make it very hard for the character to get their desire, then you've got drama, you know, and, and you, have, um, you have engagement. It is the purest drama, and there's nothing more satisfying than when that magnificent loser pulls it off, or at least obtains recognition. Uh, it's such a such a satisfying thing. Yeah, and I mean, there's 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 great pain in that film too. There's 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 painful setbacks, and I know um, when it when it came, the moment when I was writing it, and I got to the moment in the story when Colin McKenzie suffers his greatest loss. I really felt it, you know, like um, it was almost like a little tear came to my eye. And uh, and of course, when we shot it, when we edited it, same thing. And now when I watch the film, I feel I feel an emotion in that moment. And I think to myself, ah, if I've done nothing else in my life. I mean, that's pure magic there. You you conjured something out of nothing and made it real. That's, that's just beautiful. Mm, yeah, I keep trying. But yeah, like I said, I, I do I do love the movie movie, but in the sense that I like to see if I can create these moments because they make me feel good or they make mm. me feel emotional. And, and then you just hope that um, other people will feel the same way. It's, it's, there's nothing more um, intoxicating, really. Well, I will stroke your ego. Uh, just yesterday, I, I checked out that Four Carbon movie that you sent. Oh, and gosh, yeah. you, made, you made me cry my eyes out. It was uh, oh. very well done. And uh, a, a couple times now I've watched the world outside your window, the one that you wrote. And oh, that geez. was, that was very moving to me because uh, I don't have any like direct grief in my family, but I am frustrated by as my parents age, they're less inclined to leave the little box that they're in. And it's almost by sheer force of will that I have hmm. to, you know, tie a hitch to their house and drive it out just to get them out in the world right. and every yeah. time it's worth it and i found that so now granted here it's applied to a grief situation and and it's a very specific no but it's, uh, it's, it's the same thing it's exactly I felt the same it. thing so congrats to you you made me feel really wild twice <laughs> so oh, thank you yeah thank that you. that one really hit close to home um if yeah, you got a couple those... of... oh sorry go ahead I was just going to say, but both of those films are quite tough to make in their different ways. And um, uh, the, the, the Four Carmen was the first time I've, I've made a documentary where I'm filming something and actually I'm crying while I'm filming it. Oh, I'm um, sure. That little girl so just heavy. broke my heart. And um, oh. so she's crying, I'm crying, and I'm still trying to keep it together. Oh, yeah. Hold the <laughs> and, camera uh, steady. Yeah, and you do you do feel a tremendous sense of responsibility, and that that's a long way from... Um, from working with fiction, because obviously with fiction, you have a great sense of responsibility as well, you know, to uh, to your actors, um, to your investors. Um, I, I've been drawn towards documentary in the end, and um, uh, that, that's a whole different other world, because in documentary, you're, you're dealing with real people, you're, you're dealing with um, real lives, you know, and and you're 
you're taking a piece of their life and and repackaging it and uh, hoping like hell that um, it's it's not going to upset them or ruin them or or whatever. So yeah, it's 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 a whole different world. Well, both were beautifully done, and uh, I forget the name now, but whoever directed uh, The World Zoe. Outside Your Window, Zoe did. Zoe McIntosh, yeah, she's great. Really, really wonderful job. Um, got a time for a couple light questions. We'll get yeah. out of Forgotten Silver. Yeah. We're going to do some fun stuff. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, what's a movie that you love? Oh. Um, Not so well, light. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess I'm probably stuck in uh, in the seventies a little bit. Um, films that um, keep coming back to me, um, I suppose, Deliverance would be one. Um, wonderful movie. I really well, love that. Wonderful's not the word, but very effective movie. Yeah, Chinatown. I think um, one of my favorites. Storytelling. Uh, in more recent times, um, really like Red Rocket. Oh yes, we had uh, Sean really Baker like on this show in the past. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's very he's nice. Great. Guy. He's great. Like all his films, and I like that one. Um, I just saw uh, The Worst Person in the World a week Ooh. ago. Um, fantastic. Just yeah. loved it. Um, fantastic. And I think, ah, if I could make a film right now, I wish it would be like that one. <laughs> right on. I, I, you know what? Honestly, the, the, the tone of that seems to be in the... Uh, I would imagine from what I've seen of yours that a tone like that could be in your wheelhouse, for sure. Um, but man, well, I'm working on movie. a. I am working on a um, a new fiction project for the first time in ages, um, and it might be it, it might be a little bit like that. Um, I can't make any bold claims because it sure, might never sure. happen. Um, but yeah, like I say, I'm interested in real things, authentic things, and I am a person of a certain age and certain experience, um, and uh, I'm trying to draw on on that. At the same time, I'm. Um, you know, it's 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 in the world of fiction, but at the same time, it's got its feet in my own life. So certainly, I'm I'm in the process of writing a book, and every hey. time I come with a, like a really great plot point or character thing, it always occurs to me who it's based on, what event it's based on, and will I get in trouble for sharing it? So it's oh. always a, it's a, but it's fiction, but I never know. You never know what it's going to be. Oh, it's always best to um, you know pull stuff out of what you know i think it's i mean it's, it's, it's the most cliched writing advice you can ever get is write what you know but write what you know because oh absolutely yeah, yeah well i came out of the comedy world and that was the that is the hard and fast rule is as long as you can make jokes about yourself you'll never be out of material and that's true because that's universal wherever i go i could pop into a room and i start doing my set and i realize that they are of a different political persuasion or just a different perspective on life and they're just not going to find me funny yeah but, but that, that that's a comedy situation in itself oh, it certainly is well you learn more from a bomb than you ever do from a killer set yeah it's yeah. it's great to blow away the crowd but you never learn a thing um so uh, okay is there a movie that you don't love a movie that i don't love um movie yeah, that, is there but... any movie that sticks in your craw <laughs> we don't have to go there we don't have to go dark i always try to keep it positive but uh, it's a fun uh, question you know, it, generally speaking um films that, that that show great cruelty um don't appeal to me um films that are, are just miserable mm -hmm. bring me down and i can't sit through them and most recently um that would probably include jane campion's film <laughs> the power of the dog uh which i found unutterably miserable and oh, i no. laughed 
20 minutes. Um, beautiful looking film. I think the cinematographer, Ari Wagner, um, uh, probably um, deserved the, the Oscar for her efforts on that because boy, it's a good looking film. It certainly is. But I just, just find it miserable and small and it's, and it's complete sort of um, lack of hope for the human condition. And um, I was utterly uninterested in whatever meaning it had to impart. Uh, I will say that as a big fan of the movie, I can't refute a single word you said. It is very, it is quite <laughs> cynical by the end. I, I, I won't fight you on it. Because I, 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 I don't honestly, know if it's cynical. I, I, I don't know if it's a cynical film. I, I, I just, um, yeah, but I mean, here's, here's a shiny example of both of us. Both of us can't be right, can we? Um, I think I think we can because we're in the world of the subjective, you know. And, absolutely. Um, there's absolutely no point arguing about who's right. Um, I've said my piece. Um, you like it, <laughs> and you know I still like you. So hey. Oh, right on. Well, you're certainly not alone. I, I, I've talked to plenty of people who it just didn't work for, but that's what happens when there's a lot of movie. Um, you know, it can go either way. But I appreciate a bold swing. Um, is Anything there a Robert Rodriguez? Don't like it. No, not into Robert oh, Rodriguez. Except, except his very first one. I like Bill Mariachi. And oh, right after, on. After that, I just went, mm, no, goodbye. Yeah, not a not a Spy Kids fan. No. <laughs> no. No, totally understandable. Um, is there a genre that you haven't worked in yet that you would love to work in? A genre. A genre. Oh, I don't dare hope, um, Dan. Like, like I don't really think like that. Uh, sure, sure. I like um, I like certain kinds of stories, um, but it, I just don't feel like they're accessible to me. Um, I have uh, just written a uh, comedy horror, and that's something I haven't done before. And that's been filmed, that's been shot, and, that, and that's in post right now. And that was fun. Uh, I actually would like to write a really good original kick-ass horror film, and I'm finding it really difficult. <laughs> Because you're speaking my language, that is my genre. Everybody has been there, you know, like everybody has done something 17 times. It's really tough. Uh, I tend to I tend to sort of skid off the path and go into comedy. And when I say I, I've been working with a, a, a friend um, who's a director producer, and um, he wants to make films at a at a certain low budget level, you know, so where he can he can sort of basically control it all and. Um, and, and then sell it independently. So, um, you know, we've been working hard on that. We've written, we've written several scripts and we're getting better at it, you know, script by script. Right on. Um, we wrote a, we wrote a sci-fi um, comedy, which I think is really good. And actually it placed in a couple of international script writing competitions. Oh, right on. Whatever. But we, we just couldn't get arrested with it, with our local, um, our local funding um, bodies just we were showing the door in no time and and yet i know in my heart of hearts that it's, it's good work you know so there's still the hope that that might happen so in answer to your question um i'd love to see that sci-fi comedy come to pass um at least we've got this other one in the can um so you know i i i'd like that sort of stuff i like stuff that's fun and whatever mm -hmm. but at the same time you know there's there's a um uh, there's a more serious part of me that that sort of goes, you know, that the kind of the kind of horror movies I like, they tend to not be um, all about the spectacle and the and the horror. They they tend to have 
interesting ideas in them. You know, I'm thinking of films like The Ring, for instance, mm-hmm. or It Follows, I particularly liked. Um, that is my favorite, like probably in my top five favorite movies of all movies mm-hmm. ever. I yeah. love It Follows. I think it's you know, And these are, these are films that sort of, they, they scratch one kind of itch, but they also go deep into other stuff that's real you know even mm-hmm. even though they, they're in a in a kind of fantastic realm so yeah i like that kind of thing right on. i look forward to seeing it i i am a big horror fan i've got little horror posters on the wall behind me mm-hmm. i think that there's and i'm the same way i can't write anything without comedy sort of rising out of it <laughs> but, surprise but, me <laughs> yeah it's it, it is what it is but horror and comedy are always so tied at the hip and i've always suspected it's because they're really the only two genres that in order to be considered successful have to trigger an involuntary response in the viewer. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like a laugh comes involuntarily. Fear comes involuntarily. A good drama doesn't have to make me cry, but it can. But like, if I'm not scared or not laughing, then that would be a failure of those genres. But That's together, right, yeah. they're there. Oh, well, I look forward to it. Um, I won't take that much more of your time right now. Is there anything you would like to promote do you want to give us anything about um uh when the cows come home which that trailer was oh. a delight oh thank you um i'll send you a link to the whole movie it's finished i'd um, love to see it yeah it, it this is a, a new documentary and it's about another another magnificent loser um it's uh it's a film about a a guy who who's pretty much screwed up everything he can possibly screw up and then uh he he retires back to the family farm in order to lick his wounds and figure out what to do next and and there he he forms um a really quite beguiling and magical relationship with a herd of cows and uh th- through the um relationship with the cows and there's nothing nothing sort of untoward there <laughs> sure, um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um through through that 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 kind of um, connection he has with his herd and looking after them, he he kind of heals himself. So it's it's quite a it's quite an up movie. It's quite a um, a healing film. People have called it very relaxing, which is interesting. Um, well, but also, even the trailer um, was quite peaceful to watch. There was a certain vibe to it that you know, I, yeah. it, it was one of those trailers that ended, and I was just upset that I wasn't about to watch the movie. Oh well, good. That's, that's sort of what you want. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm really about um, trying to take stuff that's real and then and then put it into a form where you don't know what's going to happen next, but you want to keep watching. So I'm, I'm not a million miles away from, you know, what a fiction filmmaker does. Uh, it, it's all about storytelling in the end. And um, but the difficulty, I guess, for a, a New Zealand filmmaker, like I said, well, here we are at the, the RCN bottom of the world and nobody knows we're here. Uh, it, it is very difficult to distribute your work. It's it's relatively easy to make a film and relatively impossible to uh, get it out there and get it seen. So, I mean, the fate of this film really rests on whether it will get any kind of action at uh, international film festivals. It may or it may not. Um, I have got distribution for it in Australasia, so I guess some people will see it, and I'm very happy about that. But um, I had a film some years ago that it uh, it was selected for competition at the Toronto Film Festival, and you know that was a tremendous breakthrough for me personally. Even though financially it, it didn't really add up to a hill of beans, but it meant that um, I was in a, a, a I was in a, a section of the festival. There were fourteen documentary films, and I was amongst all my heroes. 
there was Vim Benders, Werner Herzog, whatever, and, and there I was. So, you know, if I do nothing else. <laughs> That's incredible. That. But it comes down to just, you know, you, you want to, to show your stuff. You want people to see it. You know, it's, it's, it's all very well having a film. And I know I've made a good one, but will anyone see it? It's like, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, etc. Yeah, so um, I suppose for that reason, we began talking about Forgotten Silver. Um, that's a really important film for me because that that is one that, even, even though Peter Jackson's name was probably more associated with it than mine, I know people have seen it, you know, and and, oh, yeah. and they're still talking about it. So it's it's a very um, treasured one, you know, in my, in my, my back pages. Um, but I, you know, I, I would like people to come and check out my other stuff. And um, I do have um, a Vimeo on demand uh, page, and I have several films on there. So if anyone is curious, they're welcome we'll to put it in the show notes. Vimeo. Yeah, I'll link to uh, everything uh, in the show notes. So they can check it out. And when, when, uh, when the cows, when the cows come home. So I wanted to make that title right. When that yeah, is available, I will make sure that our listeners hear about it, because um, I would love for it to be seen. I'll keep you posted. All right on. Well, we are out of time here. I want to thank you so much for donating your time for the show. It always means a lot to find out that people listen and to find out that notable people listen and that you've covered their movies is just, my ego is is huge right now. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Look, it was an absolute pleasure. And I do listen. Yeah, you're fun to listen to. So good oh, on you. Right on. That's what I try to do. All right. Well, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. And I'm going to stop this recording with Sarah Farewells. <laughs> and there we are. That was my interview with Costa Botes of Forgotten Silver. Thank you again to him for reaching out to us. Thank you for everybody here for listening to the show. Um, got a couple minutes to kill. Uh, man, you know, I'm going to devote an episode to Inland Empire, so I don't want to talk too much about Inland Empire, but I will say that watching it on the big screen was a huge help in terms of like keeping my attention. Watching that one at home is awesome. But watching it on the big screen like really allowed it to cast its spell. And it was a good spell that was cast. I watched, um, as I mentioned earlier, Enemy of the State yesterday. Oh, man. Um, wild to watch in the wake of the slap. Wild to watch in the wake of the careers of the entire cast of that movie, which includes Jamie Kennedy and Seth Green and Scott Kahn and Regina King and... Um, who else was there? And John Voight. And uh, it was one of those, like, every five minutes, I was like, oh, shit, it's that person. Oh, shit. When Regina King was Will Smith's wife, that blew my mind. Um, but, you know, you watch them do this movie, and now they're both Oscar winners. Wild. And, um, and man, and what a movie. It's definitely... I watched it because I was seeing the conversation later in the night, and I know that they're supposed to... You know, they're not actually a sequel to one another. That's not what's actually going on here. But because Gene Hackman plays a similar character who we could suppose is an update of... Uh, is it Henry Call? Something Call from uh, The Conversation. Ha, huh, Call. Uh, which, uh, you know, he becomes this character. And so, you know, it's not a direct sequel. It's not actually supposed to connect. But it's one of those things that's fun, and they definitely lean into the way that he looks and behaves. Although, as I understand it, Gene Hackman looks and behaves however he wants. Uh, you know, you have to, like, trick him into doing something he doesn't want to do. Because um, that guy... But man, what an actor. And what a performance in the conversation. He's barely in Enemy of the State. I would say that Seth Green and Jack Black as the power hackers... Oh, and Bodie Elfman. Uh, they, you know, that they would be... Uh, 
they, they had more time than Gene Hackman, I think, collectively. I mean, maybe not more, but it's close. Jason Lee. Jason Lee's in it. And um, it's a pretty good movie. I mean, it's it's very, very of its time. It's very much a movie that that reminds me of Tony Scott at both his best and his worst. Uh, but, it, you know, I kind of like him at that level. That's, that's when he's my most favorite, when he's being gaudy and all in your face, but it's still coherent. Um, I like that about Tony Scott. I prefer a Tony Scott era, you know, something like this, as opposed to even something like Top Gun, which I watched recently, which is very, very dumb. Dumb, dumb movie, but I loved it. Can't wait for the new one. Enemy of the State was unsettling in a way, though, because the things in this movie that the NSA and that the government does to spy on the people, it's stuff that is so commonplace now as to be quaint. Like, the most... The most villainous stuff that they show the government doing to spy on people is stuff that we gave up on trying to stop so many things ago and uh so it's just funny like do you really want the government being able to follow you on your phone and it's like ha i signed up for that actually as it turns out i realize it uh you know so that kind of stuff's fun to look at in hindsight but ooh, there's a big old boom there's a real good explosion the ending is one of those that makes uh yeah, kind of makes sense but it also has like makes a no lick of sense but it's really good. But it's no the conversation. The conversation where enemy of the enemy of I keep wanting to say enemy of the gates, enemy of the state is. It's a, probably the more fun movie. But the conversation is one of the most patiently considered and brilliantly crafted movies I've ever seen. From the score that's by who I'm gonna make you wait while I look up, but um. You know what? I just got an email as I opened up my phone from Zoom. Now, you won't know it because with slick editing skills, I edit out a gap. You won't even notice it because I'm so good at it. Uh, I edit out a gap in the interview that came as a result of the 40-minute limit on Zoom, which used to be a limit that was only imposed upon Zooms with more than two people. Yet, when I was doing the interview you just listened to, I got that notification, despite being only with one other person on the line, that I would be at a 40-minute limit. And then right now I got an email asking if I wanted to update because of, I guess, that incident that happened. And I gotta say, Zoom, you're a little bit of a liar. I didn't know that, that changed. Although I probably did just click a terms of service agreement and completely signed up for that. But that's what we do. Doris, you still here? Yeah, she's still here. The conversation, yeah, I was looking up the composer. I'm trying not to squeak my chair. Kevin Loud told me that he could hear my chair squeak, and he's right. Hi, Kev. Yeah, you just gotta wait for me. But it's Francis Ford Coppola in the movie that he lost the Oscar to himself the year that he won the Oscar for Best Picture for The Godfather Part Two. But if I were to pick one of the two movies, it's The Conversation. One of the best, like, you think one thing, and then the last seconds of the movie change everything that came before, but without cheapening it to a way that you can't rewatch. Uh, let's see. Yeah, this is written and directed by Francis Ford Coppola. It's, oh, God, it's fucking brilliant. David Shire. Of course it's David Shire. Why wouldn't it be David Shire? Of course it's David Shire. Oh, look at that. He was the orchestrator for the taking of Pelham 123. Look at that. Yeah, you know, David Shire, Talia Shire, Francis Ford Coppola. Rocky! Ah! Ah! Man, it's so funny going back watching the Rocky movies. Like, they just, they did Adrian so dirty. They did Adrian so dirty, nonstop. 
She's in a coma. She begs Rocky not to fight. He fights anyway, even when it's a bad idea. He wins against his against everyone's better judgment, and he just keeps winning. And have, having this this his wife cares about him so much. She cares about him. He has brain damage. She begs him not to fight. She begs him not to fight. And he's just like, I gotta go. I gotta do it. And he does it. And then she dies. And then he keeps doing it. Oh. And Polly's an asshole. And that's why we love it. Yeah, you gotta watch the conversations. Yeah, Taddy Shire, David Shire. And then I watched the Fantastic Four movie. I'm not ready to mount a defense of it because I can't say that it's very good, but I can say that it's not the disaster that everyone says it is. It falls apart in the end. It crumbles. It has a rotten third act, like very rotten third act. It just... But there's what they were going for there and only getting like halfway, maybe a little more than halfway, is something very interesting and cool. And it was a gamble that was never going to pay off. It obviously did not pay off. Um, it's something that... I'm sure we'll see more of in the future in terms of these characters. Um, but uh, I'm sure that'll go a little bit more back to the the original image. But, uh, man, I'll tell you what. It's cool. There's some body horror shit in it. It's fun, weird science. It's a lot of people barking things about quantum dimensions and hacking the encryptions and things like that. And And I love it. It's done completely in earnest. And it's only it's only a hundred minutes long, not even I don't think, and that's that's good. And then we're out. But uh, and I, the Doctor Doom scene when he first shows up and blows up people's heads is metal, metal as fuck. Now this all could have gone harder and it all could have been better, but things are what they are and it is what it is. And so I like to mine that little juice out of it. And I think it's delicious juice. But shame about the movie. Anyway, I think that is, uh, that's all I'm going to offer you today because I'm tired. That was a good long interview and, uh, ooh, excuse me. Ooh, I had a Wawa pepperoni bagel sandwich. Ugh! Ugh! Ooh. So that was I Like to Movie Movie. Thank you again to Costa Botes for coming in to the show. Not coming in, zooming in. It's, it was New Zealand. It was, it was wild. It was nighttime for me. It was morning for him. He was in the future. Um, so I hope you enjoyed that, and uh, I will put a link in the show notes to all of the things that you can check out from him, as well as where you can watch Forgotten Silver, which you really should do. It's a very cheap rental, and it's a very good movie, and you probably will want to watch it twice, because it's it's a lot of fun, so it's worth owning. Um, that is it for me, at Movie Movie Cast on all of the things. I'm at Dan Scully on some of the things. And uh, Movie John Podcast Network, and uh, check out Hot Property at Hot Property Pod on all of the things. Uh, that is it for me. I love you.